before we get to our text and before we do our review, um, and we started with kind of a question last week too, a, a personal question in, in the sense of, have you ever uh, felt like, um, and I guess the best word to say is, have you ever felt like you were duped? You were, you were tricked in some way, uh, a way in which you now look back on with some embarrassment uh, maybe many of you have had an opportunity like that. I think of a simple illustration in my life of when I was in college. And uh, one of the things I really love to do and sometimes think I'm okay at, but really as I've gotten older I've realized I'm not that good, is I love to go bowling. And as I was in college, a couple of uh, new friends that I had just made decided that we were going to go bowling. And, and uh, there was three of us, actually I think there was four, but there was four of us there and uh, one one of them said, "I'm you know I'm a pretty good bowler, just so you guys know." And and I said, "Well, that'll be pretty good competition because I'm pretty sure I can I can keep up with you. And I'll probably beat you. You know that you know whatever you want to call it. I wanted to show that I would be you know better. And you know some trash talk ensued, and those type of things happened. And uh, another two of my friends were there, and one of them said, "You know I'm really no good. I'm no good." Uh, and after we started bowling, I realized he was telling the truth completely. He was awful. Um, turned out he ended up being my best man. Uh, but uh, but there was this other guy, and uh, his name was Nate. I still remember. He was only at our school for a semester. Loved Nate, but he always talked negative about himself. <clears throat> and he said, "Oh, don't worry." Sean, who was the other guy who was not that great, said, don't worry, I will be worse than you. And so we're going into the bowling alley, and he keeps talking about how bad he is at bowling, that he's never, he's been a few times, but he really just doesn't, he's not that great, and that we'll have no problem beating him. So me and this other guy, we're like, okay, it's going to be between me and you, we're going to battle this out, we're going to see who the better bowler is. And we start bowling, and we all go, and we do all right, and then Nate gets up, and he bowls a perfect strike. I mean, right off the bat, and we're like, okay, well, flukes happen, right? So that's how that works. We went through the second frame, and lo and behold, another strike. Getting a little, all right, something's weird here. Uh, third frame, and wouldn't you know it, the guy gets a turkey. All right, three, three strikes in a row to start off the game. He, in the end, beat us like 240 to like 120. I don't even know what our score was, but he killed us. Afterwards, I said, Nate, you said you weren't very good at, the, at bowling. You said you didn't bowl much. He's like, well, I guess it had been a while, but I used to bowl in a league. You know, you probably could have told us these things instead of telling us that we were not going to have a, a, a problem. So I felt like an idiot. I felt very embarrassed because I was bragging, and then I got completely and utterly destroyed. Now, that story really has not much to do with what we're going to look at in Scripture other than we see Jesus doing something today with the scribes and the Pharisees. And see, I said this to my wife earlier this week as I was studying this. We talk about Jesus in a lot of different ways. We talk about him being loving. We talk about him being God. We talk about him being uh, a sacrificial. We talk about so many things about Jesus, and they're all true, and they're great things to talk about. But sometimes I think we miss, not only was Jesus the greatest in all of those other areas, but he was also the greatest when it comes to wisdom. What he's able to do today as we go to the book of Mark is he is going to take the scribes and the Pharisees, which if you remember from last week, were trying to trick him. They were trying to get him to condemn himself by answering a question incorrectly, or not even incorrectly, but answering a question that would pose an, uh, a challenge on him 
from one side or the other. And Jesus masterfully answered questions and showed people who he truly was through those questions and they couldn't trap him, they couldn't trick him. And then today, we're going to see that Jesus goes on the offensive. He, he really, he looks at the Pharisees and scribes, he takes the opportunity after they've been trying to trick him and really what he does in the end is he turns everything around on them and they are made to be fools. Much like I was made to be a fool in the bowling alley, but in so much greater of a way. And so that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Uh, we will be starting in verse 35. Mark 12, 35. <clears throat> and we'll read that in just a moment, so you can turn there and be ready to read. Before we get to reading, let's do some review. If you've got your note sheet in front of you, we have a paragraph. Try to follow along as we fill in the blanks of what we've seen so far in the book of Mark. So throughout the book of Mark, we see Jesus is the suffering servant king who is truly God and truly man. That's going to come into today. Jesus not only taught this, but demonstrated it through parables and miracles. This led to opposition and pressure from those around him as some followed while others rejected him. Jesus' ministry served all people, and during his ministry, he slowly reveals his identity to his followers and tells them that his mission is to suffer and die. His followers should expect the same and live a life of self-sacrifice. We've now seen Jesus coming into Jerusalem, showing everyone that he's the Messiah on Palm Sunday. Unfortunately, right after this, the Jewish leadership would be condemned, as we looked at last week, by their lack of faith as they try to destroy Jesus' credibility. And that is where we find ourselves, and I already told you what we looked at last week, but if you remember, Jesus has come into Jerusalem, he has declared himself as king, the people have declared him as king, and now the authorities of Israel are very scared. And they're, they're trying to figure out a way to discredit Jesus, to destroy his credibility, to make it so that people wouldn't follow him any longer and so they go out of their way even after Jesus tells them in a parable of the vineyard that they're going to send they're going to beat and kill the servant of God the son of God that would come to them they still try to find a way to get Jesus out of the way and so last week they tr they tried they asked him a political question that he was able to, to answer in a masterful way they, then they asked him a theological question and he was able to answer with God's word and, and they, there was no, no question that could be made about his response. And finally then he was asked what is the best, what is the thing that we should do? A practical question. And he talked about love, loving God and loving others and everything else falls under that. And he was not trapped, he was not uh, uh, confused at any point. He was able to answer well, he was able to show who he was and who he is, and also demonstrate his messiahship, the fact that he is the king that they've been awaiting. So that's where we find ourselves, and as I already said, in the midst of this, Jesus goes on the offensive. Here, for the last couple pages and the last part of this chapter, Jesus has been on the defensive and answering their questions, and now we see Jesus flips the tables, uh, not the temple tables that he's already done, but now he, in a figurative way, he flips the tables on uh, the uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he asked them a question. And he, he asked the people around them a question, and he knows that what they were trying to do was to ask a question that he couldn't answer. What Jesus does is he turns it around and asks them a question that they can't answer either. 
He could, they can't. And that's where we find ourselves as we come into Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verse 35, if you would read with me. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the, that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put everything in that she had, all she had to live on. We'll stop there today. We are going to quickly hit 13, 1 and 2, but we'll read that in just a second. So we're in chapter 12. We're looking at what happens right on the heels of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the lawyers, the ones that knew the law, the ones that knew God's word, supposedly. They come to Jesus. They've asked him these questions. And then he, through his teaching in the temple, asked, he questions them. We see that Jesus questions the scribes' belief about the Messiah. He questions their belief. And if you go back to the book of Matthew, you'll actually see that he, he, it's not that he's teaching the crowd and the scribes are way away and they can't hear anything. As he teaches the crowd, the scribes are right there. They're hearing everything he says. And Jesus questions their belief about the Messiah. He questions their belief about the Messiah. And what he's questioning is very simple. The fact is that the religious leaders of the day believed that the Messiah was coming. We've talked about that. But if you remember, what did they believe about the Messiah? They believed that the Messiah was a political leader that would come in, throw uh, Rome off of their shoulders so that they could be an independent nation and rule the world. That's what they wanted from the Messiah, the, the king that was coming, that has been promised from the very beginning pages of Scripture, the king that is promised to come to rule the world, they have looked at it and they've looked for a man who is in the line of David. And so Jesus says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now the implication here is that he's asking, why do they only say that the son, uh, that he is a son of David? Because really what they believed uh, was that yes, the Messiah would be a man that was born in the line of David who would rise up to the throne to rule Israel. That's what they believed. The focus here that Jesus is confronting is that they simply see the Messiah as a man, not as God, not as one who could take away sin, but only one who could give them political victory. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, I'll read that here in a second, we see why they would have had this belief about the Messiah being from Uh, from Israel, or I'm sorry, from the line of David. Uh, As we go back to, uh, where did I say we were at? We were at uh, 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. We'll see just one passage. There's many. I just wanted to show one of why they would have this belief. It's not that they're wrong. It's that their belief is incomplete. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, we see in verse 12, this is what we read. Read. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There is an eternal kingdom, and this was a promise made to David, an eternal kingdom that was promised to David that would come from his line. And so there's many other scriptures we could go to in the Old Testament. I would encourage you to even just get on uh, a search engine or whatever and search for scriptures that talk about the Messiah would be from the line of David. That is a truth that we find through scriptures. So it's important that we understand that what Jesus is confronting here in the scribes is not their belief that he is from David because the Bible has said he is from David. It's simply not that they're wrong, but their belief is incomplete. They don't completely understand who the Messiah truly is. Is There is so much more that they don't understand. And he calls them out. The scribes, the ones who should know everything about the law. They are the lawyers. They are the smart ones. They are the ones that everyone looks to as the end-all, be-all of understanding God's law. And it's to those men, it's to them that Jesus says, you're incomplete, you're wrong, you don't understand it in completeness. And so now we move on and we see that Jesus quotes Scripture then to show their error. So Jesus turns around and says, You say that the Christ is the son of David, implication being only the son of David, only a man. But then he says, David himself and the Holy Spirit makes it very clear that David was inspired by God when he wrote these words in the book of Psalms, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I put your enemies under your feet. This is a quote from Psalm 110. If you want to read it in it's a complete context. You can look at Psalm 110, 1 through 5. Psalm 110, 1 through 5, but Jesus here quotes these verses from that passage. And then, and then not only quotes it, but interprets it. And he says, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And so what we find that Jesus quotes scripture to show their error. This is a messianic psalm that he goes back to. It is a psalm that the scribes and the Pharisees would have no doubt believed was about the Messiah. He's not just pulling out some random scripture that uh, he is pulling out of context. That's not the case. Jesus wouldn't do that. This is a, a verse in the context of what the scribes would understand is a psalm about the Messiah, the coming Messiah. So right off the bat, he finds level ground with them, but then shows them their error through what they already believe. In this portion of scripture, we see that the the, both lords are different words for Lord. The first one is Yahweh, you know, the I am, the, the most holy name of God. And the second one is Adonai, Master, Lord. Those type of, the, that's the idea. And they're conjoined together. They're both used throughout Scripture as names of God, Adonai and Yahweh. And, and so Jesus then points that out. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, and this is David speaking. So what is David say, saying? David is saying that the Messiah will be the master and king of even him. How can his descendant, his physical descendant, be his Lord? It's a logical problem. If it's David's Lord, how can he be David's son? And this is what he's bringing up. And then also in this passage that he quotes, it talks about sitting at the right hand of Yahweh until I put your enemies under your feet. The point here is very clear that the Messiah would be Lord of David and would be king over all. Sit at my right hand, the highest place of authority. There is no other higher authority other than the throne of God at the right-hand side. That's where Jesus is. That's where uh, he would be set. And he would put all his enemies under his feet. 
The idea there is that Jesus, again, is king. This should sound familiar because all the book of Mark is pointed to Jesus as king of the world. King, of, uh, king that would not, is reigning now, yes, but would also physically reign in the future. And so Jesus is seen as king here, there's no question. And really, the idea of using the Lord, this is, the Messiah is deity, he is God. Leads to the highest authority and subjection as king. So really what Jesus does here is Jesus shows his dual nature. Jesus shows his dual nature through this teaching, through his instruction. So as Jesus instructs about his lordship, he says, look, uh, I am fully God, I am truly God, and I am truly man. We've seen that throughout the book of Mark. So Jesus asked this rhetorical question and he says, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Notice how there's no answer. And as you look in other passages when this, in this same narrative is being told, the scribes and the Pharisees have no answer. But it's not that they have no answer because the implication is clear. The only way you can answer this question is one way. The only way you can answer this question of how David can call him, his own son Lord is that Jesus is indeed man, but is also indeed God. It's his dual nature. It's seen right here. And he understands that if their answer, this is the implication of that is what the answer is, but of course the scribes and the Pharisees would not, would not say that that's true because Jesus has been teaching this for the book of Mark. They, they would be verifying his ministry if they were to agree with him, and of course they can't. So the question he asks completely dumbfounds them. And we have seen this is what Jesus has been teaching and demonstrating through the book of Mark. And it's clear too, by the way, if you want, if it's, I, I know it's kind of hard to understand how, how is he God and man, but let's just be clear here. Jesus had to be fully man. He had to be truly man in order to die. God is immortal and he had to become man in order to die and, and give his life and what we're about to remember today through uh, communion to, to shed his blood and to break his body. Those things couldn't happen if he didn't take the form of a man. And so Jesus comes as a man so he can die. But let's not forget he's not only 100% man and 100% human, he is 100% God at the same time. We don't understand it because we're not God, but he had to be God in order to resurrect and defeat sin and death. And so Jesus is very clear that he is both man and God. The interesting thing is after his resurrection and after all of these things happen, after his death and resurrection, Peter, who you'll remember is the perspective that's being written in Mark. Mark is writing from the perspective of Peter. Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, after uh, Jesus has, has left and the Holy Spirit descends, we see that Peter's very first sermon, he quotes the same psalm, and if you want to look at that, we won't go there, but in Acts 2, uh, in Acts 2, as he gives this sermon in verses 34 through 36, Peter himself quotes this exact same psalm to point out to all those who are listening that the Messiah had come, he was fully God, fully man, and that they needed to come to faith in Jesus for true salvation. That the rescuing that the Messiah had brought was from sin and not from political powers. And so Peter, no doubt, as he remembers this here in Mark, he also remembers it as he's preaching in the book of Acts. This is a powerful thing. And we see what happens at the end of all this. The great throng heard him gladly. They were happy. Really, they were amused. The scribes who were supposed to be the ones that knew everything were now completely dumbfounded. 
And so the crowd was gladly hearing what Jesus was saying because they're finally seeing and hearing truth. And yet, still less than a week later, he would be put to death. But as we continue on in this passage, we see that Jesus didn't stop at questioning the scribes and Pharisees for their theological beliefs. He also took the time to use them as an example to teach about the pride, about pride, the danger of pride and the danger of uh, indulgence. And he teaches, to, he teaches the crowd. So Jesus then moves to instruct about pride, verses 38 through 40. And we see that he's teaching the crowd. He just dumbfounded the scribes. And now he says, and in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor and of feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus then moves on from questioning the scribes and, and now he's moving on to almost a, an accusation of the scribes. It is an accusation as the crowd hears and he wants to teach once again what following God and being part of the kingdom is really all about. He's just declared himself as king yet again. Uh, God, man, king that would rule over all and we need to follow that and so he's, he goes again and shows what the opposite of following God with our whole heart looks like. And so Jesus talks about, first of all, he talks about the pride of the scribes. He talks about they walk around in their robes. If you look in, in, in what was happening in Israel at this time, the scribes would have long, flowing, white robes. And everywhere they would go, everybody would know, hey, there's a scribe. They would be able to pick them out from far away because of all white, these long robes. And they would walk around and people would, would pay them respect. At times people would bow. Sometimes people would give them money. Uh, whatever it was so that they could earn favor with the scribe because the scribe was so lofty. And as the scribe would walk around in these white garments, they would also find themselves in prominent places and positions in the community, in the synagogues. Wherever they would go, they wanted to be seen. They wanted to be first. They wanted to be out there because after all, they were the smartest of the smart. They understood God's law. They knew everything about it and they wanted people to know that. And so it was very clear as they walked around that they were very uh, prideful, arrogant, show-offs. That's what the scribes were doing and Jesus calls them out and says, don't be like that. He says, beware of that. He says, don't do it. Beware of them because they are living in pride and Jesus makes it very clear that they are prideful and that is to be walked away from. And then he goes on and talks about the fact that pride is seen in their hypocrisy and pride is seen in their greed. Pride is seen in both hypocrisy and greed here in this point. As he's talking to the scribes, he talks about the hypocrisy that they have as he goes on and he says, after he talks about their pride, he says, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. The idea here is that the scribes are in public very, very religious the scribes are really going through the motions better than anybody else. If anyone was to look at the scribe, not only would you see their robe, but you would see them praying. You would see them fasting. They would be very obvious of how holy they were and how much they were pursuing God. And you were to, to look to them and see them as an example of what it meant to follow God. And yet what Jesus says is at the very same time they're praying these lofty prayers for people to hear and they're wearing these robes for everybody to see. In the midst of that, he says that they are devouring widows' houses. What does this mean? Well, it's simple. 
What was happening at that time is the scribes, they didn't make money. They didn't have jobs. Their job really was to know the law, to teach the law, and to walk around and show people an example of what law abiding looked like. That was their job in the sense of that's what they did. So they didn't have a job that paid the bills. Uh, They didn't have a job that was giving them income. And so where would their income come from? It would come from people donating to them. And and so you would see all sorts of people that would donate because you would think, if I donate to the scribe, surely I'll get some favor from God. I'll get some favor from the scribe and I'll be in a better place. And so people would give. And of course, and I don't want to say this to, to... I do not want to say this and have this misunderstood, but we understand that a lot of cases that, that women can be very vulnerable, all right? And so the widows who don't have a husband, they're on their own. These scribes come to them and they ask them for money because somehow that's going to that's gonna give the widows greater standing in society because their standing wasn't great anyway. And so this, this is what was happening. And we see uh, in history that there was the poorest people were the ones that were giving the most money to the scribes. The widows, those who are poor and begging, they were the ones that would give money to the scribes hoping to get something in return and it was really a big con game. If you ever had a salesman show up to your door and you just know that what they're selling is not what they say they're selling and you just know there's a con going on, this is the, one of the greatest cons and they don't care who they hurt as long as they're making money and they're becoming prominent. And so Jesus says that's hypocrisy. I'm just going to give you this passage. I was going to... No, actually, I'll read, I'll read a few verses from it. I want you to turn to Matthew 23. Matthew chapter 23. This passage is happening at the exact same time. This is... Matthew goes into much more details about what Jesus actually says to the scribes and Pharisees. Mark gives us a glimpse, a snapshot of what is said to the uh, scribes and Pharisees at this time. Uh, but as we look at in Matthew 23... We're going to see verses 1 through 36. We won't read them all. I would encourage you at some point, once again, Matthew 23, uh, 1 through 36. This is Jesus' full word to the scribes and Pharisees. It's, it's so much more complete and it's so much more condemning. And I would encourage you to read it. We won't today because we're looking at Mark, not Matthew. But I will read a few verses from Matthew 23. I want to look at verses 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside might be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You, and you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." And this is just a small piece of what Jesus says here in Matthew 23. But it's very clear what he is accusing and what he is calling out the Pharisees and the scribes for. And it's hypocrisy. He says, you're like a dish that has been cleaned on the outside and it looks nice. It's on the display case and you can look at the display case and see the beautiful china. And you reach up and you grab the cup and you bring it down and inside is filth, sludge, mold, whatever it is. It's just gross. It was something you'd never drink from and yet it looked so great when it was displayed. And Jesus says, that's like you Pharisees and scribes. You look great on the outside but inside you're rotting away. Just like the tombs. Whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside but inside the tomb it's dead men's bones. And he calls out the scribes and Pharisees 
and he says we need to walk away from hypocrisy and greed because that is pride. And then he finally says pride leads to severe consequences. Pride leads to severe consequences. He says, look, they will receive the greater condemnation. I don't necessarily believe that there are are levels of hell that people will be punished in someday, but I do understand that even in this life, God will deal with people in different ways depending on what they do. And what are they doing? Well, what they're doing is this. They are using God and they're using religion to advance themselves. This is the exact opposite of what God calls us to. The exact opposite of what He calls mankind to do. Mankind is called to reflect His image and give Him glory. And, not, and, and if anything, God should be using us to bring glory to Him. Not, it's not that we should be using Him to bring glory to us. It's completely backwards. And Jesus makes that very clear that this is serious. This is not just a little thing. Using God to advance themselves. That's what they're doing. It's a serious thing that we need to consider. I'll stop here just as a quick side. Let's not just look at the Pharisees and scribes and say, wow, how terrible they are. Let's think for a minute about where we are. How many times have we done the exact same thing where maybe things on the outside look great, but inside we're, we're melting away. There's sin that's overtaken us. There's problems that we're facing that we just don't have answers to. We're stressed out beyond belief. We're depressed and we don't know what to do and yet we hold it all in. We're struggling with sin. There's uncleanness in us and yet we don't ever reach out. We don't, it, it's, it, we come to church, we look great, we sit in our chairs and everybody's like, awesome, I'm going to sing these songs, I'm going to listen to a sermon, I'm going to leave and then my life is going to fall apart. We need to be able to be transparent and not be hypocrites. Not live one life that looks great on the outside but inside we're just rotting away it's so easy for us to do i was there as a teenager in high school well obviously i was in high school when i was a teenager but when i was in high school and in youth group in my church i it became very clear to me that if i wanted adults in my church to like me i needed to act as spiritual as i possibly could so i would go around and i would talk about my devotions i would go around and talk about my prayer life i would i would tell people once i decided that i wanted to become a pastor and that was a big thing like i could go to somebody and say hey, I'm going to study to be a pastor when I get out of high school. And people in the church would be like, wow, that's awesome. Like they'd tell my parents, like they'd come up to my parents and be like, what are you doing? Like he is, the, he is just the thing every parent wants. And I loved it. I thrived on it. But behind it, my life, when I was alone, I was con- consumed with lust and pride and all these different things that were just eating me from the inside out. But on the outside, I sure looked good. Those were the most miserable years of my life and yet still sometimes I'm tempted to go back that way because I don't want people to see that I'm hurting I don't want people to see people see that I'm struggling but our pride needs to get out of the way and hypocrisy is one of the greatest ways that pride shows up because we live one life in front of others live a completely other life behind it and God says there's condemnation to that this isn't oh, you know, everybody does it, no big deal. No. There is severe punishment. Jesus cares. God cares how we live our lives. lives, Not just about the outside, but the inside. It's interesting in chapter 13 as we go back to Scripture. In chapter 13, and we'll get back to this next week because we'll definitely be looking at it again. 
But this is after the widow's offering, which we'll come back to. And Jesus, uh, here's what we see. And he came out of the temple after all this happened. And one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus again shows this. The external appearances do not last. The temple looked great. The temple was a symbol of Israel. And it looked great. It was beautiful. It was one of the most beautiful buildings in all the world. It was amazing. And Israelites would look at that and it would be pride for them to have such a beautiful building that was built for God. God is supposed to dwell in Israel in the temple. That is the the calling of Israel, and yet they perverted the temple. We've already seen that, and Jesus says, it's all going to be destroyed. What you see, it doesn't matter how beautiful it is, it doesn't matter how great it is, this temple in Israel, it, there's, there's going to be destruction that is coming back, back again to their, because of their lack of faith. And Jesus makes it very clear that external things are not what we focus on. Whether in our lives or whether uh, we feel like we can project out in another way, in an external way to show that we are somehow holy or following God when really it's all about what's happening in our hearts. And yes, when our hearts are right, it will come out in our actions. But so many times we can act one way and completely be another. And Jesus is saying once again, don't look at the external. Who cares how beautiful the temple is? It's going to be destroyed. Look to me. And in other passages we'll even see that he makes this connection that he is the true, the, the true temple, really, the dwelling of God. God is there. He's right in front of them. And yet they're more amazed by the temple than the fact that Jesus is right there with them. And Jesus says that external does not last. Moving on to our last point this morning, as Jesus continues to teach and to instruct, finally, Jesus uses a widow to teach through her example that what, about the opposite of hypocrisy and greed, which is really humility and sacrifice. So Jesus instructs about sacrifice. And we start in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had all that she had to live on. There's a lot of things that we could learn from this story. I think Jesus is really, he's, he's dovetailing on what he just talked about with the scribes, and the widow is the opposite of the scribe. She didn't do this with fanfare. She came in, and, and how this would be is in the temple, they would have several different places that you could come up and drop your offerings in. Some were free will offerings, some were for other things. Uh, and, and this is so interesting. We see Jesus... Uh, is watching the offering box. I don't know if this gets you, but it's just like, like if I today went back to one of those boxes and I was going to deposit my tithe for the week and one of you was standing next to it and you were just staring at me, that'd be a little weird. Jesus is sitting here in the temple watching people, watching what they're giving. He's sitting at a point where, and it's got to be obvious, he's watching, he's seeing what people are giving. But I would say this, just a real quick thing, he was watching then and he's watching now. Listen, okay, I'll talk about money in a second. This is not the purpose. But what you're giving, it might not be seen by anybody else, but Jesus does. Uh, and whether that means you're giving a whole lot and you don't let people know that, Jesus knows. He's watching your faithfulness. 
or maybe you're not giving and maybe nobody knows, but Jesus does. And those are things you've got to understand. And Jesus here is watching the offering box in, in the Bible and he's still on the throne watching us today. And Jesus says he watches then, he makes a point to compare the rich to the poor. He makes a point to compare the rich to the poor widow. And what he says is he's watching as many people came and they put in large sums, we're told. And then a poor widow comes and she puts in just two little coins. And for the Roman readers, he, he says that's about a penny. See, they gave much with very little cost, a lot of the rich people. They gave very much, but had little cost. They gave because they had abundance and therefore they were able to give and they gave. And no doubt there's part of this that they were doing it with pride. I'm sure there was a piece of that because as it's out in public, they would be giving. And he says you could see who was giving a lot. So if you were trying to hide it, you could probably find a way to hide it. The way that these, these offering uh, bowls or, or like, I don't even know how to really explain them, but they were metal, so when you dropped money in, it would make a noise. And so if you brought a whole handful and threw it in there, everybody's going to know what you're given. And lots of people are given a lot, but with very little cost to them because it's not really a sacrifice. But then we find the widow, and she gives a little with a big cost. She gives so much less than the people who are giving a lot, and yet Jesus says it's her giving that God looks for. He doesn't look for the amount that's given out of abundance, but he's looking for the amount that is given out of sacrifice, which we'll talk about in a second. She gave her entire day's wages. If you understand how much money she gave, that's what she gave. An entire day's wages that a widow would receive is exactly what she puts in. This was her money to live on. She gave it all away. She's paid, she has the money that she needs to, to provide for herself and yet for whatever reason, and I believe obviously God being sovereign has sent this woman at this time for Jesus to watch and to make this point and her, her, her fame, I guess, if you want to say that, will go on forever through the pages of scripture and she gives everything she has and Jesus says this, giving is not for show, it's, it's a service and it's for sacrifice because we see that Jesus values sacrifice over abundance. Jesus values sacrifice over abundance. And it's very clear here that we must give sacrificially. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. The rest of the book of Mark has told us that we need to live sacrificially. So if we need to live sacrificially, then it just makes sense that we would be giving sacrificially. And so this is a point that is made. He wants it to be very clear that giving and humility and doing these things not because of pride or because you can uh, to make a show of giving. It's not about the show. It's about the sacrifice. And I want to say for us today, obviously this is specifically about money, but it's not just about money. We have other commodities and other resources that we can give to one another, whether it's time, whether it's money, whether it's uh, resources, whether it's our home. I could go on and on about a list of things that we can give sacrificially, and yet so many times we hold back. And that's a sad thing. And Jesus says here, as he's looking at the widow, he says, look, she gave everything. She was willing to sacrifice. Not only sacrifice her desires, but really sacrifice her needs. That's a key there. The tr simple truth of Scripture is, is this. Matthew 6, 21, many of you know it. Where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Matthew 6, 21 makes it very clear that if you're storing up money and you're, you're saving money for yourself and not giving, 
whatever you're giving your money to, that's where your heart is at. I'm not here, okay, I'm not a televangelist that's looking for money, right? I don't, no, that's not what, this is the Bible. Sacrificial giving, that's what he calls us to. And in Matthew, he makes it very clear that where you put your effort, where you put your money, where you put the things that he's given you, that is a proof of where your heart is. If you find yourself looking at your budget and looking at your calendar, those two things will probably tell you what you care about most. That makes sense. It just makes sense. If you look at your budget and you've got an exorbitant amount of money going to one area, that's what you care about most. Especially if other areas that like giving uh, to others, giving to the church, whatever it might be, are so small and yet uh, something else is so big. Where is your heart? Where, where is it? And that's a question all of us have to ask. I've been there before too because I've, I'm in, I've been in many spots in my life in which I say, you know what, I don't really have anything to give. Uh, you know, I don't have extra. What, I'm, what I have is I'm using for these other things. But then I realize as I look at my life well, I probably didn't need to have that cup of coffee from Tim Hortons yesterday. I probably could have saved money and used it for a better purpose. I'm not saying it's always wrong to have a coffee. Don't get me, I'm not, please. Because uh, I'm still going to buy my coffees. I'm just saying there's always ways. We can't use the excuse of I don't have anything. Neither did she. We can't use the excuse of I don't have anything to give. Neither did she. And yet she gave it all anyway. And I'm not asking all of you to go out and sell your house and give all of the money to the church tomorrow. I mean, if God's calling you to do that, feel free. Uh, But no, that's not the call. But the call is, are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to truly hurt a little bit when you give? Whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's uh, your resources, are you willing to hurt a little bit in order to give and help? Maybe even hurt a lot of it in some cases. I admit that I have failed in this way in so many ways. And I think all of us have, and I'm not here to make us feel bad. I'm just here to make us realize that God wants sacrifice. But here's the great thing, and I want to end with this as far as, far as this ser- part of the sermon. The great thing about it is this. God does not call us to sacrifice so that we will, be, uh, so that we will suffer and be tortured. He calls us to sacrifice because he's got so much better for us. So much better for us. We don't know what happens to the widow. I do know that she's in the pages of Scripture to always be seen as an example. But in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, going back to the Old Testament, and then we'll go to the New Testament. But if you want to move back with me to Malachi, beautiful passage here that many of us forget about. I'm going to be careful about how I uh, say what I'm going to say here. In the book of Malachi, chapter 3, we see that God is talking to the Israelites about their giving. And in Malachi chapter 3, he says this in, chapter, in verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And there, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, I want to be very careful. I am not saying, if you give, you'll be blessed. Give $10 today and Jesus will give you 100 tomorrow. All right, that's out there. People will say that. That's not the point. I don't know if the blessing is going to be financial. It might not. Maybe the sacrifice that you might make financially will never come back to you. Maybe you will suffer with the budget for a few months. 
But Jesus, God, he says, look, if you are faithful to give, I will be faithful to bless. And whatever that looks like, and God will bless you. And I'm not saying like it's a, it's a perfect formula. You give a certain amount and God will increase you by a hundredfold. I don't know. God chooses. He's sovereign. But I do know that he's a God that is going to bless sacrifice. He's going to bless giving. That's what he does. Philippians 4.19 as we move to the New Testament. Many of you will know this verse. Probably haven't memorized. Uh, in Philippians 4, we see the same concept in verse 19. All right, in Philippians 4.19, it says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He will supply every need. Now, don't take this out of context. In the context of this, he's talking to the Philippians about how generous they were with what they had. That God had given them so much and they had given it back. And remember, let's remember, money, time, resources, doesn't matter what it is, it's not ours, it's his. We are borrowing it, we are stewards of it, and so therefore when we're giving it back to him, we're not giving our stuff to him, we're giving his stuff back to him. And so in here, Paul understands that, look, since you were willing to be so generous and to give, what God is, to give back to what God has given you, God will provide. God will provide. God will bless. I believe that with all my heart, and I don't know what that looks like in your life. You might not see the blessing until the very end of your life. I don't know. But God is a faithful God who will bless obedience, and that's what we see here in both Malachi and also in, in, in Philippians. We see that giving will... God will reward. Now, like I said, do not take this out of context. It's very careful. We've got to be very careful about this, but we need to be willing to give and to give sacrificially. Jesus has instructed us on, what, on who he is today. As we've looked at these points, we've seen that Jesus has instructed about who he is. He's the Lord. He's the King. He is the Master. We need to live that he is our Lord, our King, our Master he, he taught us who He is, but then He also taught us how we should live in response to the fact that He is Lord. And we need to live in a way that runs away from pride and run towards sacrifice. Run away from being uh, obsessed with our own abundance and our own selves and our own uh, pride and all those things that come with it and instead run towards humility, just like the widow who was willing to give everything. And Jesus makes it very clear in these passages what it, who he is and how we should respond. Which leads us to our questions that we need to ask ourselves. And the first one is simple. Is Jesus Lord over your life? Jesus is very clear here that he is God. He is the Lord. He is the Master. He is the King. Do you treat him like such? Do you believe that he is your Lord? Do you Act like He is your Lord. See, you know, some people have come to Jesus and, and they simply want what He can give. But what think about not only what He's going to give you, but what you can give back. And the whole point is here, if you see Him as Lord, He will be the master of your life and you will live for Him. You won't be perfect. You won't ever, it's not like you'll never have problems. It's not like your life is going to be uh, always uh, sunshine and rainbows. It doesn't mean any of that, but what it means is that you will follow Him that you will listen to Him, that you will sacrifice for Him, not for yourself to make yourself look better, but for Him. 
this is the essence of salvation. If we truly believe in Jesus, then he will be our master. And I know not everybody will agree with this, but there is a lot of people out there that say you can believe in Jesus and not really have him as your master. That doesn't make sense. If you really believe in something, it will it'll change the way you live. If I, if, I, if I didn't believe that this floor on this stage was going to hold me where I stand, I wouldn't be standing on the stage. I believe that this will hold me. I know it will hold me. And so I stand here. I live according to my belief. And that is what happens when we believe in Jesus. We believe that he came to the earth to live a perfect life as a man, once again, so that he could die for our sins, so that he could have pay for all the wrong things we've done and all the times we've turned our back on God and that we don't deserve to have a relationship with God anymore and we should be separated from him forever in this life and in the next in hell. And yet Jesus came to die on a cross, take all of our sin upon his body and die so that we would have the opportunity to have a relationship with God again and not be separated from Him forever, but instead live with Him forever. That's eternal life. Heaven's a part of that, but it's even bigger than that. It's eternal life that lives forever with Jesus. That is what He offers. And He says, if you believe in that, if you believe in Me, then come to Me, trust Me. I am your Master. I am your Lord. Please follow Me. That's what Jesus says. And that is our call. And if you have not done that, if you have not come to Jesus... Maybe if you're here today and you're hearing about him for the first time, maybe only a few times you've heard about him, or maybe you're here and you've grown up in the church and you know what Jesus' name is and you've heard about what he's done and yet you've lived a life and maybe you believe up here but you've never really accepted him, you've never really committed your life to him, then make it today, don't wait any longer. For us who know Jesus, we really got to consider this in our lives as well. Are we living our lives in pride and hypocrisy? Even knowing Jesus doesn't make us perfect. So are we living our life in a way that is humble, in a way that is truthful, or are we living in a way that is prideful and and hypocritical? And I cannot answer that question for you. I can only answer that question for me. And you can answer that question for yourself as you talk to God. Ask Him to reveal those places in your life in which pride has overcome you and hypocrisy is taking you away. You're probably miserable if you're living as a hypocrite. I can almost guarantee you're living miserable life right now. Come to Jesus, confess, repent, have others build into your life and be humble and sacrificial. And that leads us to our last thing. Are we humbly giving in sacrifice money time resources anything else you can think of are you humble enough to say I'm going to put aside my life to sacrifice for someone else to sacrifice for Christ are we living a life of humble sacrifice on that note we will move into communion because as we think about the sacrifice we have to have the only reason we sacrifice is because he first sacrificed for us Otherwise, we don't have the power to love. We don't have the power to do anything without his strength and through what he did on the cross. As he died for us, he gave his body and gave his blood. So if those four men that I asked would come forward as we get ready to pass the elements this morning.